welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And before we hear this week's interview, I just wanted to say that the Madden America podcast recently crossed over the 1 million downloads mark. And so I want to thank all of you who take the time to listen to the interviews because we couldn't have reached this milestone without you. We'd love the podcast to continue to grow and you can help us do that by listening regularly, by sharing the interviews with others and by sharing our content on social media. Also, Madden America now has a new family resources editor with Amy Biancoli taking over from Miranda Spencer. The family resources section is an important part of Madden America and it will be developing under Amy's guidance. So do visit our family pages on maddenamerica.com and get involved if you can. Okay, and now on to our interview. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Micah Ingle, a doctoral candidate in psychology at the University of West Georgia and a research news writer for the Madden America website. Today I'm joined by Dr. Camille Robsis. Dr. Robsis is a professor of history and French at Columbia University. She did her undergraduate work at Brown University and her PhD at Cornell, where she worked for 10 years. Dr. Robsis has written two books, one published in 2013 titled The Law of Kinship, Anthropology, Psychoanalysis, and the Family in France, and a more recent book from 2021 titled Disalienation, Politics, Philosophy, and Radical Psychiatry in Postwar France. These works are indicative of her areas of interest and expertise, which include European intellectual history, most specifically 19th and 20th century France. Her recent book, Disalienation, covers a period of mid to late 20th century French psychiatric efforts that were highly experimental and shared things in common with other anti-psychiatric movements at the time, while also distinguishing themselves from, for example, the work of R.D. Lang. Uh, Dr. Ropsis has a great deal of expertise in this unique approach to psychiatry or radical psychiatry, which is called institutional psychotherapy, uh, as well as its French and more general European context. I invited her here today to talk about how she developed an interest in this approach, as well as to learn more about what made institutional psychotherapy such a novel form of psychiatry. Welcome, Dr. Robsis, and thank you for speaking with me. Thanks so much, Micah, for inviting me. Okay, so let's jump right in. Um, across both of your books, you seem to have a strong interest in French politics, psychoanalysis, psychiatry, and how these things connect. Um, could you provide our listeners some background information about what drew you to these interests? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I was actually trained in, in intellectual history. Uh, so, so as you said in your introduction, that's really the, the goal of intellectual history is to think about the relationship between texts and their contexts. Usually, historians tend often read texts in um, 
in a way uh, kind of symptomatically, right, as a symptom of their contexts. And often literary critics or theorists don't address the context at all, sort of focus on the formal quality of the text. So I think of intellectual history as kind of the, in some ways, the best of both worlds, because you try to read philosophical, theoretical, psychoanalytic texts closely, but also relate them to the various contexts in which they were produced. So both of my books really take on this approach. Um, I have been interested in psychoanalysis for a long time. Partly, as you mentioned, I was an undergraduate at Brown. I worked with someone called Carolyn Dean, who uh, who wrote about Lacan. So that's kind of where I discovered it. And, and then in graduate school at Cornell, I worked with Dominica Capra. Both were historians, uh, and they had turned to psychoanalysis to think through historical questions, but also they were also interested in the kind of the history of psychoanalysis as such. So, so in grad school especially, I read a lot of psychoanalysis, a lot of, of Lacan, and my first book, which came out of my dissertation, The Law of Kinship, really was kind of my attempt to wrestle with, with Lacanian theory. Just to tell you a little bit about that book, um, in that book, I was interested in how the works of Claude Lévi-Strauss, the anthropologist, and Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalyst, were being used in legal and political fields in France. Uh, so, which might sound surprising at first, um, but basically, I, I was writing this during the early 2000s when when there was this big controversy in France around uh, same-sex unions, the PACs, it was called, and various experts were asked to intervene in these debates, as the French usually have a lot of kind of cultivated experts intervening in these things. And they started to invoke all these very difficult notions by Lévi-Strauss and Lacan, so things like the incest prohibition, the law, the symbolic order, castration, to argue that, that you know, if gay unions were recognized by the law, like the prohibition of incest would fall apart, or that if children grew up with, you know, in same, with same-sex parents, they were mo- more likely to be psychotic because they would be missing the name of the father. So kind of like a very literalization of, of, of certain Lacanian and Levi-Straussian ideas. So I was interested sort of in like reading these authors and understanding what these concepts meant originally, what, what they actually, what these authors said about them in their work, but also how to understanding how they had traveled from academic circles to politics. And so it's in the context of this first book that I first heard about institutional psychotherapy, because one of the chapters um, of the book was focused on the critiques of what I called the structuralist social contract of Lévi-Strauss and Lacan, so kind of uh, the ways in which their structuralist theories are really anchored on sexual difference. One of the, the, the some of the authors that criticized this, this model were Deleuze and Guattari in um, Anti-Oedipus, also some feminists that I write about, like Lucie Rigare. But anyway, it was in the context of writing the chapter in Anti-Oedipus that I first heard about Laborde, and then that took me to Saint-Alban, and then that took me to Tosquelles, and this is basically how Desalination began. Um, I should say that it was also a very... Desalination was a very archivally driven book. I, I didn't think it was going to be a book at first. I thought it was just going to be a small chapter on kind of Anti-Oedipus, and... And then I happened to be in Barcelona, uh, and I, I was, you know, I, I said like, I wonder if Tuskes has any archives. And so then that's the kind of how I discovered the PUM, the organization, the leftist organization that he was um, active. We'll return to this, I'm sure, but that he was active in his youth. And then I traveled to Reus, where which was the first hospital where he began his medical career. And then eventually, a few years after, I, I, I went to Laborde, to Saint-Alban, and to the various hospitals that I mentioned in the book. And it was really kind of 
you know, having access to their to the, the these archives of these hospitals, but more but more importantly, almost getting a feel for the place, like especially at La Borde, it was still a a, a, a clinic, uh, you know, with with psychotic patients. So kind of having lunch with them, hanging out, uh, really living living there uh, was really really important for how I ended up thinking about this project. Thank you. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about um, the relationship between sort of academic circles and uh, law, because it, it's very hard to imagine that sort of thing happening in the United States. <laughs> yeah, so your your most recent book, uh, which is titled uh, Disalienation, Politics, Philosophy, and Radical Psychiatry in Postwar France, gives a comprehensive overview of rat, uh, radical psychiatric currents of thought and practice going on at the time. You cover figures and their activities associated with what was called institutional psychoanalysis. Uh, people like Franz Fanon, Felix Guattari, uh, Francois Tosquel, Jean Ory, and, and Jacques Lacan. Um, so, I did have some questions about that, um, which you you partly answered in terms of what inspired the project. I do have another question about why, and I, I guess we can move from this into sort of, you know, what exactly were they doing in these places? Uh, but first off, why the name institutional psychoanalysis? Because when I hear that, it doesn't give me a sense of what I know that they actually were doing. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they, they goes through different names. So the institutional psychotherapy is the one that was most common, but it's also um, in the work of Fanon, it comes out as social therapy, social therapy, but it's all the same thing, basically. But as its name indicates, um, institutional psychotherapy was premised on the uh, kind of analysis of in, or the study of institutions. So institutions meaning uh, hospitals, but also schools, um, political parties, unions, families, even. And the idea here was that institutions were really were very important vectors for alienation. They were part of why people felt um, unhappy, right? <laughs> uh, but that they could also cure, help to cure this alienation if they were thought or rethought and treated with care. So I think here there's a kind of there's both like theoretical and practical um, assumptions that that go behind this movement, right? Theoretically, the psychiatrists who developed institutional psychotherapy believed that madness or psychosis was always psychic and social at the same time, right? So they played on this idea, especially of the the French term aliéné, alienated, so which means mad, but also estranged, foreign, uh, removed, right? So they were trained in medical school, right? They were psychiatrists, but they thought they all thought it were very kind of very broad thinkers, and they thought that it was absurd to try to locate madness in the brain. But it was also absurd to pretend that madness was simply a kind of, you know, angry reaction against the social and cultural forces that drive our society, and sort of to, to deny its medical specificity. So, so the challenge of institutional psychotherapy was really to take to kind of hold both sides at once, right? To say to take into account the medical slash neurological aspect of of madness, but to also really think about the social, cultural, and familial causes, if you'd like, or origins that help to shape a particular illness. And so, this is where psychoanalysis came in because they were all reading the Freud, 
they all read a lot of Freud, uh, but then very quickly they also moved to Lacan, especially the early Lacan, the 1930s, uh, because both of them, for Freud and Lacan, the subject is always a subject that is formed by conscious and unconscious relationships with other people, with others. So you could say that in some ways this, the social is really at the heart of the subjective for a, a kind of uh, Freudian psychoanalytic framework, right? There's no the subject is always surrounded by people, right, and and formed, shaped by these people. So, so one of the things they, that institutional psychotherapy argued is that not just that, it, in some ways, it was more provocative. It wasn't just that psychiatry needed to kind of include psychoanalysis in its treatment, but rather that psychiatry needed to anchor itself in a Freudian understanding of the subject and of the unconscious. And so, so that's why in some ways they spent so much time thinking with psychoanalysis, about psychoanalysis, at the same time as they were practicing doctors. Um, and I guess this leads me to your question on disalienation, um, which is the reverse uh, of the coin in some ways, right? So if alienation was always psychic and social at once, then disalienation needed to proceed on these two levels. Um, this is why, by the way, also Tuskegee's called um, Marx and Freud the two legs of institutional psychotherapy. So that the idea is that one walk, the other had to follow, right? Um, what, what, this meant, what does this mean practically? Well, it, you know, um, if we go back to this question of institutions, the problem is not so much that institutions exist, because, again, we, we need these structures to organize our social and psychic lives. But the problem is that all of these institutions have this tendency to become um, the, the word they used all the time is concentrationist. So authoritarian, oppressive, hierarchical, stagnant, right? You, um, from the hospital to the schools to the family, right? So, so, so the question that they were all kind of uh, struggling with is how, asking how can we avoid this? And, and the main challenge for institutional psychotherapy was, a, was a, you could say that it was a, a, an attempt to, to imagine within the limited confines of the hospital um, a philosophy, a social theory, but also a clinical practice that could prevent the chronic reappearance of these political and psychic concentrationisms. So, so it always was anchored in the theory and the praxis at once, right? Theory and praxis were intimately linked, and it was always any practical exercise that they devised had a kind of theoretical purpose, and all the theory was really anchored in the practice also. Yeah, so that's that's one of the things that I've been really interested um, about when it comes to institutional psychoanalysis is almost the reflexive element where it's like we're analyzing the institution itself rather than what tends to happen, which is, you know, you, you analyze the, the individual patient. That's right, exactly. In terms of some of the concrete activities and practices that were going on at places like Laborde in France uh, and some of the other clinics, uh, St. Alban, I believe was one. Yes, that's right. I think there was one in Algeria, Blida, Blida Joinville. Yeah. Uh, and that's where Fan Franz Fanon worked. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about some of the practices that they were doing at these clinics that were, as far as I understand, pretty, pretty radical. Yeah. So let me start with the theory and then get to the praxis. But in some ways, if we if we go back um, for a second to what we were talking about before, this idea that that institutional psychotherapy needed to ground itself in Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, so what did this mean exactly? Well, in, in some ways, that was a very, it was a kind of revolutionary 
statement, both for the field of psychoanalysis and for the field of psychiatry. It was it was revolutionary for for psychiatry because mainstream psychiatry um, at the beginning of the century, when all these people were studying, basically, or say even like after the war, and you could still say even today in some ways, mainstream psychiatry was very um, you know some ways conservative, closed. Uh, and 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 mostly focused at the time on kind of brain localization, right? It had very little interest in the humanities and the social sciences and even psychoanalysis and philosophy. So a lot of these doctors kind of uh, came out of medical school frustrated with the limits of psychiatry. Um, but it was also kind of using psychoanal- psychoanalysis to think about psychiatry was also quite revolutionary within the field of psychoanalysis because when Freud discovered or invented, if you'd like, psychoanalysis, he was very clear about the fact that he thought that this would work primarily with neuro- for neurotic patients, but not necessarily for psychotic patients, partly because the basis of the Freudian analytic technique is, is, is known as transference, right? Is, is what, and, so, and, and, and that happens through language, through the talking, what Freud calls the talking cure. And so uh, the problem with psychotics is that precisely they have a different understanding of language, a different understanding of the symbolic. So for a long time, the idea was that psychotics really couldn't have transferential relations because they couldn't have the same kind of intersubjective relations that sort of neurotic patients had. And so Freud kind of gave up, if you'd like, on psychoanalysis for for psychotics. I mean, he wrote about it in his famous case of of Schreber, um, but he didn't really work with a lot of psychotic patients. And so, so when, you know, Lacan really begins his work thinking about how you can use psychoanalysis with with um, psychotic patients. That was his what his thesis was about, his doctoral thesis. But then the doc- institutional psychotherapy really kind of runs with it, right, because they're much more hands-on practicing. And so they start to come up with techniques to try to think about how, the, how you can use these psychoanalytic insights with psychotic patients, even if they have a different relationship to the symbolic and a different relationship to transference. And so what they say is essentially, from a clinical perspective, in psychosis, it's not that there is no transference, it's just that it's not intersubjective, it's not one-on-one. It's not like you and your analyst in the office where you say something, the analyst says something back, right? Um, In psychosis, they say, they describe it as a dissociated, collective, burst is the word they use, transference. Um, so I, I'm not a clinician and I'm, you know, this is one of the things I had a really hard time kind of understanding how exactly it worked out, but, you know, I've asked a lot of my psychiatrists and psychoanalytic friends and, and they say that this makes sense to them, you know, that you could have transference in a group, but also with an object, you know, with a door, with a telephone. I mean, that it, that it doesn't have to be this kind of back and forth that you would have in a more kind of clinical, um, you know, patient, uh, doctor's office type thing. So this is really the kind of theoretical hypothesis that guided everyday life at Saint-Alban, at Laborde, and Blida. Um, you know, how can this hospital become a space of psychic healing and of renewed communal bonds? How can you make it a healing collective? So how can you go from concentrationism to basically this healing collective? And again, so the answer was not just theoretical, it was very practical. Um, you needed to develop structures to literally produce or institute this new social a new social that would facilitate these uh, collective transferential relations. So that was kind of the principle that guided all of the activities of the hospital. So it was, or you know, the, they had a, a lot of theater, uh, music performances, art, pottery, 
woodworking, gardening. I mean, if you look at their kind of schedules, it's like you have things, you can do things pretty much every hour, right? <laughs> There's a ton of meetings, um, group meetings, and the meetings are open to the entire hospital community. And if you had an idea, you could literally just get up and talk, right? Propose a uh, uh, discuss a problem, propose a new club, a new kind of, um, you know, activity, whatever you'd like. Um, so, so, so rethinking the hospital, you know, had to do with rethinking kind of every, everyday life, but also rethinking it at the level of the hospital, at the level of the architecture. So, so one of the first things they did at St. Alban was to tumble the walls of the hospital to, to basically allow it to be integrated with the community, with the village as a whole, um, tumble the divisions of the cells, no, no medical blouses. So you don't know who's a doctor, who's a patient, right? And the idea is, again, is, so it's, it's a practical thing, but it's also a theoretical idea because it forces you to explode fixed roles, right? You're not too, too comfortable in your position as a doctor, or as a patient, like you're constantly rethinking who's who. And so, you know, you all have lunch together. And this is the kind of thing, again, I witnessed when I went there, like, you, you know, you're, you eat with the patients. It's not like a, the doctors are sitting in a kind of separate room. It's very, it's a communal lifestyle. And so... The challenge, you know, was to, to 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 kind of figure out not just how to set up these institutions that would facilitate the emergence of the psychotic transference, but also um, how can you put in place kind of preventions so that these institutions would not become concentrationists. So you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, so so the way Uri put it is like, how can you prevent these activities from kind of becoming small kingdoms? You know, like like I'm the cook or I'm I'm the nurse or I'm the one who does the dishes, right? So the, because that obviously leads to kind of particular structures of power. And so, so at Saint Alban and at Laborde, all of the activities uh, were coordinated by, a, by a, a structure called the club. And the club was a kind of self, you can think of it almost like a kind of self-managed union uh, that the patients were in charge of. And they organized, they were in charge of kind of the actual organization and, and rotation of these activities. And, and it, you know, it switched around. So again, it would prevent this kind of reification. Um, the, you know, the person who really kind of thought about this most was probably Guattari. One of my favorite um, activities that he comes up with is this, or I guess, I don't know if it's an activity, but a, a mechanism is, is called the grid, la grille. And it's a it's a double entry chart. Um, I have a picture in the book, but it's a double entry chart with a timetable and the names of all of the staff members and the patients and the work that was assigned to him or her every day. And that would rotate. So again, you wouldn't get too comfortable doing the dishes or doing the laundry or giving out the medicine. Um, you wouldn't get too egoized, is what they said, right? And Guattari said that the gris was a he called it an instrument of disorganization to avoid the passivity generated by the bureaucratic routine. You know, so the minute you get too comfortable in something, you have to kind of rethink it. And that's what you were talking about, this kind of reflexivity, right? Um, I mean, the, 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 the way Jean-Henri put it is also beautiful. I think it's, he said, um, uh, ne pas laisser en passer une, to never let one go by, right? Anytime you think you're disalienated or you're like, got it, you have to rethink it because you might, the traces of alienation will come back. And I assume a lot of this is in response to Stalinism and some of the yes. kind of failed attempts at communi communism where there was a large degree of concentrationism? Definitely. Yes. I mean, I, um, the historical context for all this was extremely important. Um, and uh, it was, you know, they were all left they were all coming coming from a leftist perspective, but very much um, anti-Stalinist. Stalinism was in some ways for them a perfect example of politics gone concentrationist, mm, right? Yeah. Um, like 
what happens when you're not careful and you're not, um, you know, when you, when you, when you kind of don't, when you let the bureaucratic routine take over, you have Stalinism. And so the groups that, that Tuskeyes, the group that Tuskeyes co-founded, the PUM, um, when he was still in Spain, was precisely a kind of anti, anti-Stalinist leftist organization. Guattari also participated in a ton of political groups, um, all very anti, anti-French Communist Party, which at the time was very Stalinist. So, so it was kind of like how to do politics without this, this center. Yeah, so I'm curious, and, and maybe you've partly answered this already, but um, do you have any insight into how or why these sort of unique views, practices, political convic- convictions how or why they arose at this particular time in France? Because, you know, there's there are other examples of anti-psychiatric or radical psychiatric things, but they, they weren't quite like this. Yeah, so again, the, yeah, we can talk a little bit more about the historical context here because then I spend a lot of time in the book thinking about this because I think it's absolutely central to understanding the origins of institutional psychotherapy and the, and the shape that it took. So institutional psychotherapy was born originally in Saint-Alban, which was a, it's a small and remote cent- village in central France in the Lozère, and it was born during the Second World War. Um, and it really was, in some ways, the product of this cast of characters that happened to be at this one castle during the war. And it was kind of this encounter that gave birth to institutional psychotherapy. Um, these were doctors and nurses and kind of medical staff, but they also included some um, political exiles, people who were escaping or fighting fascism, uh, philosophers, poets, artists. So to go back on the to the case of Tuskeyes, for example, as I said, he was um he was a Spanish refugee who had been active in in leftist politics and the PUM and in, in Barcelona during the interwar years. He had fought on the side of the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War, and and then when Franco eventually wins, uh, or just, you know, wins the decisive battle, uh, he crosses. He he flees for France, crosses the Pyrenees, and he's placed in one of the various concentration camps that, that the French government had built for Spanish refugees. The experience of the camp was really, really important for the experience of the war and of the camp were both very important for Tuskeyes uh, to make him again realize how these institutions could become oppressive, how something like a concentration camp could have all these um, not just social effects, but psychic effects. This is when you start to have all these illnesses, right, like barbed wire disease, obviously PTSD, uh, it doesn't have that name yet, but all of these camp psychosis, right? So so, so um, one of the things Tuskeyes does during the camp, the time at the camp, is that he sets up a medical service, um, and he he realizes two things. Like he realizes first of all that you can practice psychiatry anywhere; that you don't really need a, a kind of trained staff personnel because he he recruits his other political kind of refugee buddies, you know, to help him out, and and he also realizes that even though institutions can be alienating, they can also be disalienating. Um, if you so this is kind of he takes this knowledge to Saint Alban uh, when he gets there. Of course, noticing the similarities between a concentration camp and the hospitals, right, which are in a deplorable shape. And and so when it's when he's at the camp that Tuskeyes eventually comes to the attention of Paul Balvey, who's the director of Saint Alban uh, during the war, and Balvey arranges for 
Tuskeyes to leave the camp and come work at the hospital. And when he gets to the to Saint Alban, there's a Tuskeyes is kind of um, presented with a different kind of uh, yet another form of fascism. Uh, because it's the you know, Germany has occupied France, or Nazi Germany is occupying France. There's Vichy collaboration, and and more specifically, if you want, in the field of psychiatry, there's something extremely important that I haven't mentioned yet, but but that really is at the roots of institutional psychotherapy is the humanitarian disaster that is happening in psychiatric hospitals. So so in French clinics, there's about forty thousand patients. Um, who died during the Second World War, um, and patients are basically left to die in the cold by hunger. Right? It's not. It's not like the Germans. Uh, it's not a kind of explicitly extermin- exterminationist policy, but it's more. Um, you, you know, it's kind of uh, neglect, and and of course, then you do have the German Nazi regime that uh, has explicitly embraced the eugenics and forced euthanasia of those that the regime deems as the incurable sick, incurably sick what's known as Action T4 that resulted in 70,000 um, official deaths, but the, you know, the, the kind of unofficial number is closer to 200,000. So, so all of these, you know, I think when you're a psychiatrist in World War II and on the left, this is kind of the, the context that you're dealing with. And, and so the, the, the doctors at St. Alban, their first mission is literally to survive the war and to feed their patients with the help of the local population. This is also why they set up all these gardens, all this, you know, kind of, you know, animals, cultivation, et cetera, to just survive the war. And so it's like, you know, this is what brings together people like Tuskeyes, but also other leftist kind of communist doctors like Lucien Bonafé, who was a member of the Communist Party. He was a very important member of the resistance. Um, he was friends with Georges Canguilhem, who, 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 the historian of science, because they were in the resistance together. So Canguilhem ends up at Saint-Alban also, and Conquilem is writing about the kind of relationship between the normal and the pathological. So you can see how that concept makes its way into institutional psychotherapy. Um, but then there's also a bunch of artists, I mean, most famously, perhaps poets, uh, Paul Eluard, people doing also kind of art brut, um, so uh, what's known as outsider art, right? Uh, so, so there's kind of interesting artistic circles converging in this one hospital. But I think the, the main point here is that there's, in some ways, the war... Uh, World War II and France in this in this particular conjunction makes it very clear to makes two things clear to them. Uh, the first one is that psychiatry can no longer claim a position of detachment, kind of objectivity or pure science, but that it needs to reckon with its like intrinsically political nature. And and secondly, that really that the kind of polit- that the political and the psychic are are intimately linked, right? Fascism for Tuskeyes and for his friends are, it's a kind of a perfect example of how, uh, you know, you, you can't, uh, c- collaboration requires a particular state of mind. It's not just a social condition. So that means again, two things. It means that you, when you treat a patient, you need to treat his or her social environment. And it also means that you need to treat the hospital the, or to cure the hospital at the same time as you cure the patient, the community as a whole. Yeah, and that makes me think of uh, some of Frantz Fanon's work, which I'm sure was inspired by some of this work, right? Exactly. So I do have a question, you know, because I I think probably a lot of our listeners are more familiar, uh, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on, I think a lot of our listeners are probably more familiar with people like Lang, people like uh, Thomas Saz, uh, Basaglia, these kind of other other anti-psychiatric figures. Um, so could could you explain a little bit about what 
distinguishes, and I think you have a little bit uh, just in describing some of these clinics, but could you say anything more about what distinguishes, you know, the work of uh, Tuskayeth uh, as well as Guattari and these others? So I think the best way to answer this is to kind of go back to institutional psychotherapy's understanding of mental illness as both neurological and social. Um, so obviously, institutional psychotherapy has a lot in common with with um, anti-psychiatry. Specifically, they both both currents point to the importance of um, kind of the political in, 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 in right or the, the the kind of political nature of psychiatry, but also the political and social um, genesis of a lot of mental illness. So in that way, they you know they converge in many ways, but they also defer because for institutional psychotherapy, according to institutional psychotherapy, um, anti-psychiatry tended to see mental illness as a kind of angry uh, and justified reaction against, you know, say, the heterosexual bourgeois family or the oppressive political environment. This is very much kind of the Lang and Cooper, right? Um, and and so they miss the kind of medical specificity of psychosis, right? There is nothing, the institutional psychotherapists were very clear about the fact that there was a kind of, um, you know, again, a, a kind of medical condition that needed to be treated. And they were, it's also worth pointing out that they were very open, very comfortable with medical treatments. Like in other words, they used drugs, neuroleptics, even electroshocks and insulin cures, you know? So it's not like they were against all these techniques. Um, the, the point was to not to use them in a way that they wouldn't become what Jean-Louis called a veterinary medicine, right? Not to kind of numb down the patient, but to use them, for example, the electroshock. Fanon was also very interested in the electroshock as the kind of, kind of shaking up, and then the work of reconstruction can begin, you know? So I think, so that's one big difference. And the, the second one is also, of course, around this question of institutions. I mean, someone like Basaglia fought tirelessly to close down hospitals, uh, whereas institutional psychotherapy wanted to use them and to kind of preserve them as healing tools. So there's a real kind of disagreement about where, what, what if you can cure institutions um, and, and, you know, whether they can be disalienated and disalienating. Um, so I think, I think that's one of the things. I think one last thing you could say is also that um, the, the psychoanalytic reference, I think, uh, was less present in some of this anti-psychiatric British and American anti or Italian anti-psychiatric work that it was in institutional psychotherapy. I mean, institutional psychotherapy was really entangled with Freud, Freud and Lacan. Um, you know, Lang, I'm not an expert at all, but what, from what I've read, you know, was much more interested in existentialism, kind of phenomenology, philosophy, but less, you know, kind of rigorous reader of Lacan's woman like Jean Horry, you know, spent all his career thinking about going to Lacan seminars, thinking about this, you know, and, and so, so, so using also the tools of psychoanalysis as the primary cure. So there was, there was kind of interesting overlaps, you know, and at some points in the, in, in the, someone like Guattari, for example, was kind of much more uh, open to having conversations with, with, with people from anti-side like Lang and Cooper, but, um, but others, I think of the older generation, someone like Jean-Louis was also always very critical of anti-psychiatry as a kind of naive um, romanticization of, of, of mental illness, if you'd like. Thank you. So you, you mentioned visiting, uh, I think, Laborde? Yeah, that's right. And how, when was that? Oh God, it was um, maybe 2013, 14 or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So it's still going. 
It, so it was actually, I, I was there one of the last years that Jean Ray was alive. He died like two or three years after. So, so it was still going at the time. Um, but you know, he has, he, he's died since and it's been kind of, um, in shambles and, and unfortunately nobody really knows what's happening. And they, you know, if anything, they've been closing down, they just closed down the Chenet, another important in, clinical institution that had institutional psychotherapy. So it's, you know, it's not looking that good, I think, for, for institutional psychotherapy in France these days. Yeah. And that was the impression that I got. So, so looking back, I mean, what lessons do you think, if any, uh, we can draw from these psychiatric and political experiments, uh, you know, especially in relation, and it, you said you weren't a clinician, um, but, but, you know, especially in relation to the contemporary mental health field? Yeah, that's a great question and something I thought about a lot uh, when I was finishing the book, partly because I, I was finishing it during the COVID lockdown, so... so. <laughs> Public health and mental health were very kind of omnipresent in my in my mind as I was writing it. Um, I'll mention the, the two two points here. One is I think uh, by by pointing sort of to the connection between the social and the psychic, um, I think that 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 some is a kind of uh, highlight that we can very much use today. Um, specifically, for example, the the psychic effects of racism, which is something that Fanon wrote about extensively. We haven't talked about him so much, but he's one of the figures that's also quite central in the book. Um, Fanon was a medical resident at Saint-Alban in 52-53 after he completed medical school. And he had already written Black Skin, White Masks at that point. But what's interesting about, about his in kind of encounter with institutional psychotherapy is that it confirmed many of the philosophical hypotheses that he had put forth in his more theoretical work on race and racism and on the on the psychological effects of race and racism. Um, so, so, you know, Fanon's relationship with institutional psychotherapy is really fascinating. I think it was probably my favorite kind of discovery in this book um, because we all knew that Fanon was a psychiatrist, but I, I guess I didn't realize um, how much he had thought about institutional psychotherapy and how much he had practiced it um, and how he was thought, kind of forced to rethink it when he moved to Algeria and he realized that some of the techniques that were developed ultimately for French patients were not working in kind of, with kind of, you know, in a, in a colonial setting. So, so um, you know, I think his, his work, his psychiatric writings, but also his political works that he was writing, like something like the wretched, a book like The Wretched of the Earth that he's writing as he's seeing patients, um, really forces us to kind of wrestle with what uh, an anti-racist mental health practice would look like, right? Um, how, how alienation always operates on these two levels, like in the social and the psychic, and also you know, none of, nobody gives you exactly a definition of what disillusionation looks like, but they certainly, you know, give us tools to think about. Like, how could what would a, what would the path towards a kind of disillusionated medical practice look like? What would a, what would the path towards also a disillusionated society look like? You know, it would be one that would take into account the psychic remnants of something like racism. I think would be some one way to put it. So, so I mean, it's hard to talk about lessons because again. You know, a lesson would have to be deconstructed the minute they tell you what it is, because then, you know, that would be a, a concentrationist. So it's so it's let's say a provisional lesson would be, you know, to think about some of the tools that, that institutional psychotherapy gave us to think to think about common life, 
the common, common spaces, social interactions, by really foregrounding the role of the unconscious in all group formations, right? Like all groups have a kind of unconscious, but also the collective dimension of all individual subjective development. So, so, so I think these two sides make institutional psychotherapy really exciting because you realize that the unconscious is not just a kind of something that you add on to the theory, but really the basis of the transferential process, the, the vector through which individuals and collectives can explore fantasies, conflicts, and desires. And those things are good, right? It's not, the point is not to, to ignore them. The point is to kind of explore them and to figure out a way to work with them so that they're not so destructive. You know, the, the, the unconscious is ultimately the means by which the group can avoid closing um, upon it on itself, you could say. So again, I think, you know, this is kind of abstract and broad, but I think you, you really um, can use that. I mean, I, it's something I use politically a lot to still think about, you know, to, to think about politics today, like what, you know, and, and, and to, to, to think about the role of the unconscious in politics, I'll, you know, to kind of pay attention to the libidinal, the phantasmatic, the emotional, um, right, the desire for domination often or for or redemptive violence that that I think escapes um, the framework both of liberalism and of Marxism, right? Because liberals tend to think that that something like, you know, the kind of return of fascism is purely a kind of lack of rationality. And then Marxism tends to think that it's a displacement for a kind of more real social, real, a kind of more real social um you know, phenomenon like class or something like that. Whereas for institutional psychotherapy, it's really, you know, it's, it's neither, it, you have to kind of take into account these things as such. Right. So, so I think, I think, um, you know, institutional psychotherapy can help us open kind of diagnose politics, but also open up new political horizons. If you, again, if you kind of try to, to return to what they mean by disalienation. Mm, yeah. Fascinating. Thank you. So, Related to the last question, um, do you see any principles or practices from institutional psychotherapy having had a lasting influence? You know, I, I, I was I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the link between the social and the psychic um, that, you know, the, the United Nations has recently come out and sort of emphasized the importance of things like poverty and uh other other social issues in relation to mental health so i was like okay that's that that's good, that's good. yeah exactly uh, <laughs> but in general I, I agree with you i i i don't think it's been emphasized enough um but i am curious if you if you have seen sort of these principles or practices yeah, I think I think you're. I mean, I think the the United Nations case is a very good example of how some of some of this has kind of and some of these ideas have entered the mainstream. But I would say that at the same time, um, I mean, you could take the question at the level of psychiatry. It seems to me that um, you know, institutional psychotherapy is it not exactly booming? <laughs> it's it's you know, as I was saying, most of the clinics or hospitals that function as the kind of epicenters of institutional psychotherapy in France are struggling uh, financially, politically, and intellectually. And a lot of them have given up on institutional psychotherapy, like at Saint Alban, you know, we're back to kind of tying patients down and things like that. So, so, and I think as a field, psychiatry is moving, uh, you know, aside from very few kind of, uh, you know, uh, innovative departments or, 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 cities or you know the, as, as a field psychiatry seems to be kind of closer to neurology um more reliant on on pharmacology and pills and 
and psychoanalysis and and it, you know it's in ways the psyche is more talked about in terms of cognitive behavior therapies it's not exactly like we're seeing a revalorization of the unconscious anywhere so so you know that's the kind of bad news but at the same time i do think that there you know i've been very i've been kind of excited to meet a various um, young doctors, psychiatrists, but also psychoanalysts who are returning to institutional psychotherapy and their clinical work. And, and it's been really fun to have these conversations with them, to, you know, to, to try to understand the techniques better, how, how they can use them with psychotic patients um, and, and sort of what they find, you know, not, not again, not, not, not as a kind of hagiography hey, of, ins- I don't think we should kind of see this as this movement that was, you know, all incredible. This is where I like Fanon, for example. Fanon was able to say you could use certain things and you could revise other things, right? I think institutional psychotherapy had a lot of limits. You know, they were mostly, you know, white doctors. They were mostly male doctors. So so the question is still like, how can you use that basis to kind of rethink some of its own limits, right? And, and at the end of the day, when you think about it, we still, you know, uh, despite all of the obsession of psychiatry to find a kind of either a gene or a place in the brain for schizophrenia or, and actually most mental issues, you know, it's, it's, they still can't fix it. Right. It's still no pill can actually really, um, I mean, obviously medicine can help, but no bill, no pill can fix it. So, so I think, you know, um, more and more, I think the medical field, and I think it's the, you know, in that way, the pandemic had a huge role, played a huge role in this to kind of, highlight the, the the constitutive role of the social, the political, the economic, and the cultural, and to try to see how these intersect with the medical and the neurological, instead of taking these fields apart, really trying to bring them together. And, and we've had this idea in psychology, you know, of the biopsychosocial for a long time, but it's, at least uh, from my perspective, it's always kind of cut the social off before it really got going too far. Yeah. And also, you know, one of the things I would say is that it's, you know, um, partly institutional psychotherapy really took the Conkey-Lem model of uh, the, uh, kind of rethinking what is the pathological in relationship to the normal seriously. So it, they didn't, it wasn't a romanticization of psychosis. There was a kind of attention to the suffering that goes with it. But it also was, you know, the idea was to treat it as, a, as another form of life, not necessarily as something that needed to be you know, cured because there is no cure as such. I mean, if you take a kind of strictly Lacanian um, understanding of psychosis, it's a structure. So you're not going to not be psychotic. The question is, can you live in a society, in a social setting that makes you less alienated, less kind of uh, alone, right? And this is precisely what they tried to do. But but I think you know, through the like the defamiliarization of normal, the normalness, you end up. Um, you know, studying subjectivity as a whole, not just psychosis, but rethinking like what 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 does a normal subject look like, and what you know, and and how can and how can other forms of life accommodate these different uh, variations of mental um, health, if you'd like. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does make sense, and and I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the um, sort of neurotypical versus neurodivergent debate as well. That's right. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Ropsis. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.